I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is With Good Reason. This week we're broadcasting a special episode. We recently launched a new podcast series in partnership with James Madison's Montpelier called American Descent. The following is an episode from that series produced and hosted by With Good Reason's Kelly Libby. I had to sign papers. I had to go and participate, you know, in giving my declaration and all of those things. And and I remember, like, um, just having to sign, like, yes, I I signed to this. I'm doing this. At some point, I did have the thought, like, can you just go (laughs) do this without my signature? Um, And, of course, I knew that they couldn't. Mm -hmm. But I did. I thought about it before I signed. Norma Ramirez is a Ph.D. candidate in clinical psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. And she's talking about the moment she joined five other people in suing the Trump administration for rescinding DACA. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is the policy put in place by the Obama administration that allows people who came to the United States as children without documentation to get a temporary renewable work permit. Norma came to the U.S. when she was five. By the time she and the other plaintiffs filed suit in 2017, nearly 800,000 young people were relying on the DACA program. And then in the beginning, there was this sort of like symbolic weight, psychological weight of like, you know, between six people we are we're fighting for for a lot of people um yeah and now now it's just kind of like it's there like it's happening and i have mixed feelings about where this is gonna go um how this is gonna play out but the decision to fight the decision to to not give up to say that we matter i i don't regret that This is American Descent, a podcast from James Madison's Montpelier and with good reason about pushing back in the pursuit of a better America. I'm Kelly Libby. Norma's lawsuit, it was the first to result in a preliminary order to bring back DACA renewals. That gave her a chance at two more years of deferred action from deportation, which also means two more years to pursue her dream of becoming a psychologist. In America, students, even high school students, have a variety of tools they use to dissent, and taking legal action is just one. Which is exactly what a group of teenagers from rural Virginia did in 1951. You've probably heard of Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision that forced the integration of public schools in 1954. But what's lesser known is that there were actually five communities involved in that lawsuit. One was a small town in Prince Edward County, Virginia, called Farmville. And the majority of the plaintiffs were students at this place. The Robert Russa Moton High School, which is today a museum. I wanted to understand what motivated these students to file a lawsuit against their government. 
And what did it take to get to that point? So I've asked Justin Reed to take us on a field trip to Moton. And we begin in an echoey hallway leading into what used to be the school's auditorium. So I think it really begins with the state of public education in Virginia um, in the early 20th century. Justin is the director of African American programs at Virginia Humanities and a native of Farmville. There was a belief throughout Virginia, but especially in rural communities, that black children didn't need a secondary education. And then once you educated a child to the eighth grade, that was a good enough education to make them efficient on the tobacco farm. But Justin says local leaders in the black community fought to have secondary schools. And over time, they were successful in getting grades added. Get a ninth grade added. We're going to keep advocating until they get us a 10th grade. And they finally got a 10th grade added. Um, they were finally able to get a, an 11th grade. And that school building became too crowded. And the parents said, we deserve a standalone high school. And so in 1939, this building was constructed. When the county constructed Moton, they only built it for 180 students because there was still this belief that you know, black children from the rural parts of Prince Edward County wouldn't come into town to be educated in the high school. But by year two of this building being open, it was already overcrowded. And every year it became more and more overcrowded until 1951. You know, in this space that's built for 180 students, you have nearly 500. So it's bursting at the seams with students. Students are having to attend classes outdoors. They're attending classes on park buses. They're having multiple classes in the same auditorium space here. And to deal with the overcrowding, the county responded by constructing what the students referred to as tar paper shacks. So these were three you know, supposedly temporary structures, but they ended up being used for years. Really, the conditions were, were like what you would find on a farm. So here you have these students attending classes in buildings that are built with materials that you would use to construct a chicken house or a shed or a barn even. And they're having to attend classes in these spaces. They're getting sick because they're constantly having to go from like the cold to the tar paper shack to this building. The tar paper shacks had potbelly stoves that did a poor job of, of heating the room. So students who were sitting next to it would be burning up. But if you're a few feet away, you could barely feel the heat. So you have one student in class having to wear winter clothing, like winter coats and hats and scarves, while the other student is sweating. The roofs leaked, and so in some cases, students would be sitting in class having to hold umbrellas in order to keep their desks and their work dry. And so the students are seeing this. They're going to the school board meetings. They're listening to their parents be disrespected and they become fed up, um, especially Barbara Johns, who was a 16-year-old junior here at Moton High School. Um, she went to her teacher, Mrs. Davenport, and she was complaining one day, you know, telling Ms. Davenport how frustrated she was with the conditions here at Moton. And Ms. Davenport told Barbara, if you're so upset, do something about it. And Barbara really took that to heart. And so she began to think, okay, what can I do? And the idea came to her in a dream that they needed to go on strike. And so she was very strategic in, in developing the plan for the strike. She had a secret committee of 19 other students and they met over the course of months. And she selected students based on trustworthiness, 
Uh, she selected students to represent every grade level. At that time, you had eighth through 12th here at Moton. Um, she reached out to student government leaders. And she also made sure to select students from different neighborhoods around the county so that when she began to convince the students to walk out, they would have somebody from that committee to identify with. They met over the course of months, privately, secretly. She really developed this elaborate plan. So on the day of the strike, they had one of the committee members um, disguise his voice and essentially prank phone call the principal's office. And they told the principal that there were some students in trouble downtown and he needed to come and get them. So once they were able to lure the principal away from the school, the lookouts told the other committee members that it was time to enact a plan. And so Barbara had these handwritten notes that she sent to all of the teachers calling for an assembly. And she signed these notes with her initials. And she had the same initials as Principal Jones. So when the teachers got these notes calling for an assembly, they assumed it was Principal Jones calling this emergency meeting. And he had been lured away. He was nowhere to be found. And so they're bringing all of the students into this space here. The curtains open up. And it's Barbara and her committee on stage. Principal Jones is nowhere to be found. And Barbara orders the teachers to leave the room. You know, they don't want the teachers to be held responsible for what they're getting ready to do. And some of the teachers resist. And again, the committee, they have football players who escort the teachers out of the auditorium who are refusing to leave. And once the teachers are gone, the students have their meeting here in this auditorium. And Barbara makes her case. She explains to them why it's necessary for them to go on strike. She talks about the conditions here. She talks about how their school compares to Farmville High School and even some of the other nicer black schools in Virginia. And she's able, you know, after some debate, to convince the entire student body to walk out of the protest. And so that's April 23rd, 1951. That's four years before Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. They were on strike for two weeks. During that time, they called Oliver Hill, who was known to be Virginia's most prominent civil rights lawyer. And they called Mr. Hill and said, you know, we have a situation here in Prince Edward. We're on strike for a new school. We want you to be our lawyer. And of course, Oliver Hill said, no, and I have better things to do. Go back to class, and I don't want to deal with students that are playing hooky. Get your education. And the students are adamant. They say, no, we're serious about this. We really want you to be our legal representation. We, we're aware that you're the best attorney in the state of Virginia. Will you come and help us? Oliver Hill says, send me a letter. The next day, a typed letter arrives in his office from the students. And on his way to Pulaski County, he and Spotswood Robinson, his partner, they stop in Farmville just to kind of check it out, see what's going on. Uh, they were so impressed by the students and how mature and how determined they were, how well organized um, they were. Oliver Hill said he didn't have the heart to turn them down, um, but he did give them two stipulations. Number one, they needed their parents' support. Um, and number two, instead of just suing for a new school, you have to be willing to sue for integration. So the committee takes a vote, and they decide by one vote that they're willing to sue for integration. And so the students return to class. 
Olive Hill and Spotswood Robinson filed a lawsuit in federal court in Richmond. And that lawsuit combines with four of the cases that become known as Brown versus Board of Education. teenagers are organizing here in Farmville, Virginia, Martin Luther King Jr. is in graduate school. So this is before we know King as a civil rights leader and that he became. These students are laying the groundwork for the civil rights movement. And really the youngest student was 12 years old. So you had 12 year olds helping start the civil rights movement in this country. And I think many moments throughout history we look to young people to kind of be that, that, that measurement of society, right? They're able to, to kind of see things as they are without the same level of fear. And yes, their parents had been dissenting and their teachers in their own way had been dissenting, but it, it, it took young people, in some extent, like our naivete, right? In order to say, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna think about you know, all the reasons why not to do something. I'm simply gonna do it. Students continue to walk out of their schools in protest, even today. We saw it recently with a national school walkout to protest gun violence after the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. Norma Ramirez remembers the student walkouts in California that called for immigration reform and started the Dreamer movement. So in 2005, 2006, I remember, you know, there were um, schools where kids were walking out from when that was happening, no one in my class walked out. And so if I had walked out, it would have been obvious, so it would have been singled out. Norma says she remembers a friend in school expressing her opinion on immigration, that when people seek citizenship in the U.S., they should do it, quote, the right way. Norma says that affected her. And I, I fell into this narrative of, like, the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant, and... I always wanted to make sure that I did everything right the way I'm supposed to do it because I didn't want anyone to say that I had broken any laws or that kind of stuff. And Norma was a good student. She says she kept her head down and got her work done. It wasn't until high school that it really dawned on her what her status as undocumented would mean going forward. And so what did it feel like when you were, like you knew you wanted to go to college, right? When you were in high school, like what did it feel like to be navigating the college prep route in high school? It was very disappointing, um, very emotionally draining because whatever I tried, it seemed like there was a a wall, literally and ironically, um, to get to college. at first, I thought that I couldn't. Like, I wanted to go to Yale. I wanted to go to NYU or Harvard or Stanford, you know? Like, that was the kind of ambition that I had. And at the time, there was no help for just undocumented students. And I would also get invitations from other government organizations saying, like, you're smart, you have a good GPA, and you're also a minority there's some ready college programs that you could benefit from. And 
I remember I, I, I had this conversation with my dad and he's like, you know, they, they won't be able to help you. And I was like, what do you mean? And he told me, you don't have a social security number. They're government funded. They're not going to help you. And I didn't want to believe him. And I told him, well, let's go and find out because I, I want to hear it from them. Mm-hmm. And so he went with me. I think we went about three times to these different things. And they all, you know, we we sat through their presentation. And then when I went up to go talk to them, they would say, we're sorry, we can't help you. And so after a while, you know, um, I just, I stopped attending them. So all of that was very emotionally draining. The only reason I think that I kept trying to go to school, to go to college, was because I was too afraid to go into the real world. To get a job. Norma says she would often translate for her dad, and she'd see on job applications a place for a signature, stating if you're a U.S. citizen or eligible to work in the U.S., and that if you were dishonest, there'd be consequences. And that was scary. And I knew people did it, of course. Um, People find ways. But I, I was too afraid to confront that at the time. Yeah. And so I felt like I was pushed to, you know, go to college because that was safer. I knew that. I knew how to do that. Well, and so then what did you do after high school? So there was a program that I could go to. It was to help students go into college. Community College of Southern Nevada High School. Um And it was a mix of having high school classes and also college classes. And I did that my senior year. And so I finished my degree there. I got an associate's in psychology, and then I transferred to UNLV to pursue a bachelor's in psychology. And that was in 2011. And so coming from um, CSN, to UNLV, the tuition tripled. And it was coming to a point where I wasn't sure if I would be able to continue going to school mm-hmm. or if I would just have to take one one class at a time. And then Obama made the announcement well, in 2012. Effective immediately, the Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. Over the next few months, Eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. In that same speech, he clarified that the work authorizations would be a temporary stopgap measure, not amnesty, immunity, a path to citizenship, or a permanent fix. So then I received uh, my work permit in the mail, I believe the day right before Thanksgiving in 2012. And now she and five other people are suing the Trump administration for rescinding DACA. Norma was in her third year at Fuller when she was asked to join. I asked her what it felt like to make that decision. To me, it was a bigger risk to not do anything. And so I decided that if I have this opportunity to to fight, um, then it was worth it. Because 
I know what it is like to have some sense of security, some sense of identity, some sense of like I can plan at least a month ahead of my future. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the work permit, the moment your work permit expires, that's when your license expires. That's when just basically everything expires. And so to go from one day to the next with just to go back to nothing, um, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't just sit back and, and say no. Yeah, that sounds like a really stressful way to live. Yes, it is. Um, there's some research out there right now about the different mental distress and factors that we experience. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, also resiliency and it's it's you know it's this very mixed bag of deep suffering but also deep love i've always lived with fear you know fear of who is going to accept me who's going to reject me um the idea that someone is going to call you know ice all those things i i've that has been part of my life that has been the constant fear uh so when this came up i had to make sure that my family would be okay um so if there was any kind of criticism or hate or anything for me you know making this decision like at least i believed that it you know the most fair thing I guess would be that you know it would stay with me like I would be the one facing the consequences mm-hmm. I didn't want my family to suffer the consequences of that action yeah and so I did um, I spoke to lawyers that kind of stuff just to make sure um, that they would be okay um, and so um, when I did make my, my decision I told them like I'm doing it because I, at least to the best of my knowledge, you'll be safe. And so please don't, don't start looking into that. Um, but I did have people tell me not to do it. Because of the way um, our, our identity is in this country about you shouldn't be here um, and how that message is brought on in, in a variety of ways, both vocally, um, through politics, through through laws, through through systems, um, and and I want to use the plural we because you know it's not just me; it's it's all of us. Um, we dissent by existing, by being in spaces that were not created for us. For example, you know, graduating from high school. And then going to college, like even that, that is such a huge step for our community right now. And so by being in those spaces, when we're told, you know, you shouldn't be here, in some cases, it it, it even feels like you shouldn't exist. Like to just show up and be like, actually, I do and I do matter. And here I am. Mm -hmm. That is a powerful way to do that Um, personally. I don't think I fully experienced that up until I got to graduate school. That's when I felt the difference. That's when I felt the biggest culture shock because, like I mentioned, I was the only one. 
and the majority of people are, you know, some variation of middle class um, white people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're my friends. I love them. But our worlds and our experiences and the way that it was set up so that they could be there but not me, mm-hmm. that is how I dissent. And I know that I do ask questions. I bring things up, you know, that they may not be thinking about. And that's really what it is. That's what it feels like to me that um, there's a term actually that is used that our resistance is our existence. What would you say to young people who see an injustice and want to do something about it? I know that there's fear to be associated with the person that, you know, is being devalued in some way, shape, or form, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no one wants to be rejected. No one wants to be made fun of. And so it's hard. It's hard for us if we see it happening to stand up at some point. There's something there. However, from what I have been learning, I've been learning that relationships are very powerful. That's what we're made for. We are social beings, and we all desire to be loved, to be accepted, and to feel safe. And so just, you know, befriend that person, the person that you feel is, or you see, that is experiencing some kind of injustice. There's no need to be like, well, I want to go and help them. There's no need to have that sort of framework in mind, but have more the framework of like, I just want to get to know them. Mm. And that, that is going to have so much more impact and benefit because there's been studies that show that relationships have the same kind of effect as exercise and a healthy diet. And so that is how we change the world, I think. It's through one relationship at a time Mm -hmm. and a good one, you know, um, one where you do feel loved, accepted and, and safe. Norma says they're still waiting on a decision regarding their lawsuit, but that it could come at any moment. American Descent is a production of James Madison's Montpelier and with good reason at Virginia Humanities. Our artwork is by Carson McNamara and our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to the Moton Museum. I'm Kelly Libby. Thanks for listening. listening to With Good Reason. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Earlier this month, three journalists and authors came together in Roanoke, Virginia, for a public conversation about local journalism, rural communities, and the opioid crisis. The conversation took place as part of the Democracy in the Informed Citizens Initiative, a project of the Federation of State Humanities Councils. You'll hear Beth Macy, an author and longtime journalist for the Roanoke Times. I, when I came here in 1989 to work for the Roanoke Times, they said, do you want to get on a waiting list to be in the good parking lot right next to the building? And I actually said, I'm embarrassed to say this now, no, I'm not going to be here that long. (laughs) And you'll hear Monica Hesse, author and feature writer for The Washington Post, So I was at the Academy Awards, and um, Jennifer Lopez was standing on my dress, and I just felt like I am really tired of this. And I got an alert on my phone, a news alert, and it was like another arson in rural Virginia. And I thought, someone should write a book about this. And it was me. And you'll hear Pulitzer Prize recipient Eric Eyre of the Charleston Gazette-Mail. The focus of our story was to track the uh, the actual flood of prescription painkillers into our state and actually um, went into our board of pharmacy and I said, can I take a look at all the, your suspicious order reports? And they had, they brought out these two boxes and I said, how many are there? And they said, we don't count them. I said, you don't count them? And they said, no. And I said, what do you do with them? And they said, we don't do anything with them. And this was the way, this was sort of the, the, the stopgap, the way to prevent this flood of pills. We're bringing you highlights from that conversation, which was moderated by Dr. Reginald Sharif of Radford University. Our format for questioning tonight, we will have several rounds of questioning. I'll ask the panelists an open-ended question and they will have a discussion among themselves. And so I'll start with Beth. What role did regional economic decline have on your topic? Um, Well, really figured into all three of my books when I set out to write about the aftermath of globalization in Martinsville and Henry County, I wanted to see what that looked like on the ground. More than half of the jobs had gone away, so not just the textile mills and the furniture factories, but also the stores and the mom and pop shops where the factory workers would buy things. So it was more than just the factory work. You know, they had had the highest unemployment rate in the state for over a decade when I first went down there in around 2011. And what that looked like on the ground was a tripling of food stamps. Uh, Disability rates had gone up 64.1% since uh, China joined the WTO in 2001. And crime uh, of a nature never before seen in a place like Martinsville also during the heyday of industrialization, they said there are more uh, millionaires per capita in Martinsville, Virginia than anywhere in the country. When I set out to write Dope Sick, I sort of thought of it as Factory Man Part Two because at the end of Factory Man, there were things happening like abandoned furniture plants were being burned down, so arson. So the guy that I wrote about and that the news media covered, in particular one of the fires, was a guy stripping copper wire out of the Bassett Furniture Plant to resell on the market. And the prosecutor said, yeah, he was, you know, had lost his job, et cetera, et cetera. But I was also hearing, and this was now 2013, a little bit later, I was finishing up the book, I was also hearing that 
drug crime was really up. And what I didn't put together, and what I think the media was kind of slow to put together, was the fact that A, Martinsville, Virginia was the number one place for opioid prescribing in the nation, and B, the guy who was setting the accidental arsonist, because I don't think he meant to set the fire, was not doing it just to feed his family, but he was also being, doing it not to be dope sick. He was addicted to opioids. So those two stories were really connected. Yeah, in our case, um, we looked at the southern coal fields and they had a very vulnerable population and that's where the pill problem was concentrated. The heroin problem was a little bit different. I think what we were seeing were people getting, because of the heavy industry, the mining industry, the mining accidents, it would start out with um, a legitimate doctor, usually, um, and then the person would get hooked and then they'd be cut off and then they would wind up at one of these, uh, they call them pill mill pain clinics. and. Um, you would just see cars, you know, snaking around the, the, the block to, to get in there and from all these other states. And we had like 50 or 60 of these pain clinics in the state, and they decided to regulate them finally. And they started actually going in and inspecting them and delivering reports. And even though the inspectors were going in, they were still operating the same way because they hadn't been regulated before. There's no doctors there. They're cranking out prescriptions on these machines like at one, you know, one a minute. They had armed guards. I mean, literally, they carried the guns on them. And the guys with the guns would do the weighing and take their blood pressure and stuff like that. <laughs> it was just crazy. I mean, it was really like the Wild West. Working on the book, I've gotten a lot of um, surveillance videos of, through various court cases and things like that. And the pharmacies were just crazy. I mean, the one in Kermit, they've got video of the people just literally throwing the, the bags of Oxycontin and hydrocodone. Oh, you know, literally throwing it over the, over the counter, and they had um, because the lines were so long, they started handing out free popcorn. They set up a, uh, uh, like a little stand for hot dogs and hamburgers. <laughs> they were giving away, and finally, they actually even uh, had separate bags because, you know, they, some people actually needed blood pressure medication. So they put one colored bag, they put a legitimate drug in, like a blood pressure medication. And so that they, you know, people when they leave, the people that were there to rob people wouldn't steal their their legitimate drugs. Eric, you mentioned um, the transition from opiate use to, to heroin, and I know you both you and Beth have written about that. Would you one of you briefly discuss this for the audience? Yeah, we, we both can. Um, when, I mean, pretty simple. When they clamped down, started clamping down on the prescription drugs and and you know, all sorts of limitations on the number of days and the prescription was for and the, the number of pills you could get. But Beth, you've, you've wrote a lot about heroin in your Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of the origins of it in not just the pill mills, but among the doctors. I mean, what Purdue Pharma did was they, in 1996, they, they hired an army of sales reps and they sent them all over the country. But back to Reggie's point about distressed areas, they were particularly uh, hitting distressed communities because they bought the prescribing data from something called IMS Health. And that showed them which doctors in the country prescribed the most competing opioids. And so those happened to be in places where the jobs had gone away. So furniture factory towns, um, coal mining areas, 
textile mill towns, logging, fishing in Maine, places where there were legitimate workplace injuries. And a lot of these people that were initially taking prescribed Oxycontin had taken lower uh, immediate released opioids uh, for injuries, legitimate injuries, and had been able to get off them because the drug wasn't as strong. But when Purdue came in and flipped the narrative that now, uh, you know, for 100 years we knew that um, opioid pills weren't safe to take except for in cases of extreme pain and uh, end of life and cancer. They flipped the narrative saying it's okay for moderate pain uh, back pain, osteoarthritis, TMJ, and told the doctors that it was safe. They ended up prescribing the most in these rural towns that happened to have higher rates of disability because of legitimate workplace injuries. But suddenly, coal miners, like some of the people I wrote about in the book, who had been okay before and had still been able to function, Oxycontin turned them into non-functioning people. And so before you knew it, there were farmers and miners selling everything they had for this drug, losing their jobs, losing their families. One said, it became my god. And if, if, if you haven't been to rural America lately, it's, it's really changed. Um, I was in my hometown in Ohio not long ago and visiting with my little nephews, my great nephews, they're like nine and 11, and we were having chili dogs and in this little town that was just idyllic and nobody locked their doors when I was growing up. And we were gonna go to the park, which was right across the street afterwards. And uh, so I said, well, let's walk. And they said, no, let's, let's, let's drive. And I said, well, why? We can see it. And, and they said, Aunt Beth, we don't want to step on heroin needles. And it's, it, it's just a, a different place now than it was. Okay, thank you. Uh, we'll start our second round of questions. The question is, the research shows that small towns have fewer institutional <coughs> resources to confront social problems than larger urban areas. What type of institutional resources would have mitigated the social problems identified in your work? Well, I think about Bassett. People used to have, they used to see each other at work now. Now the only place there is to go to is the History Museum there, and there's one restaurant. The main thing with the opioid crisis that I've written about um, is just not enough urgency at the state and federal level in terms of getting treatment available, and particularly in the states that haven't yet passed the Medicaid expansion. In New England states that were earlier expanders, they now have programs that help if you OD and you end up at the hospital, they will get you into treatment right away. Um, in, in Roanoke, if that happens, you're going to be a three-week wait before you get into a Medicaid-assisted treatment program. Um, in those states that I mentioned, they have harm reduction services more plentiful. Um, so that's like a syringe exchange and recovery program where people can go and they could get clean needles in exchange for their dirty needles. They can get hepatitis C testing. We have a really high hepatitis C rate here in Roanoke. And then they can meet people. A lot of these people are living homeless and on the streets, um, engaging in criminal behavior and uh, prostituting for money to buy drugs and they're really falling through the cracks. But if there's a low threshold uh, place where people can go, and I think of my, um, my, one of the young women I followed the longest was a woman named Tess Henry, and this is a locket her mother gave me. I have a picture of her in it. She died on Christmas Eve last year, but one of the first things she said to me, she had been addicted initially at an urgent care center 
two opioid prescriptions for 30 days for a simple case of bronchitis. This was in 2012, and the, one of the first things she said to me is, we need an urgent care for the addicted. And I think of that as a syringe exchange because it's a place where you can go and then you can get referral to wraparound services. One thing um, that was striking to me is that the DEA was virtually non-existent at the height of the pill problem in our state. They just really couldn't get anybody to come to West Virginia. I met with um, the DEA agent after our stories came out. I met with the special agent in charge out of D.C. and. He was pretty open and honest about it. He said, we just had a lack, of, a lack of manpower. Nobody wants to come there. I was playing tennis with a guy who was like the head of diversion for DEA uh, a couple years ago. And he was living in Louisville and commuting to West Virginia because he didn't want to live in Charleston. So <laughs> um, people say, you know, why, you know, why did, uh, you know, local law enforcement not do anything back when this, you know, it was just, you know, you had lines out the door for people trying to get into these pill mill clinics and the pharmacies. Well, one thing I found over and over again, that a lot of the spouses of the law enforcement officers were working in the pharmacies and the pill mill clinics as support staff. Um, and they also hired the local law enforcement when they retired as part-time security. And then lastly, um, they, there was, um, you know, a couple counties that were like, let's, Let's go after the pharmacies. They were, before they went after the distributors, they were trying to go after the pharmacies. And all these county commissions were sort of gnashing their teeth, these county commissioners. Um, they said, oh, we can't, you know, we can't really, we can't really go after the pharmacies. And I'm like, well, well, why not? You know, what's wrong with that? Well, of course, they donate to their campaigns. But beyond that, they were like one of the biggest employers or in, in, in the, in the, in the towns that they were in, and they also were like supporting like the Little League teams. Okay. Uh, and Eric, who will start this next round of questioning. The question is, what opposition did you encounter in your reporting? Um, we, we had two prongs of opposition. One was um, our attorney general. He was a former uh, lobbyist for uh, drug companies. His wife was a lobbyist for the uh, largest distributor of uh, prescription opioids in the state, a company called Cardinal Health. Um, we actually um, went to court to try to pry loose some records that shows that he was involved in this case. The allegation was that he was trying to either slow walk the case or get the case dismissed. It was a lawsuit that he inherited from the previous attorney general against Cardinal Health. Um, so we went to court through a public records request, and we actually lost. We lost that battle um, to get the records. It turned out um, later um, somebody came up to the porch and dropped off some documents on the front porch, went home and got them, and it was the documents that, that he wouldn't release and somebody had, had uh, leaked to us. So um, we got all prepared to to uh, write the story. The documents showed that he had involved, involved in the case. He had said he had stepped aside or recused himself from the case. And so um, we uh, prepared the story. I, he had a policy. I had to send him questions. And then we get a call and an email from him that if we publish the story that we're going to face uh, serious sanctions, we'll be in violation of a court order, 
Um, I, you know, I'm like, sanctions, what does that mean? Are we going to be put in jail or something? <laughs> and um, our uh, lawyer talked to his uh, solicitor general and he said, you know, you really, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go to court, we're going to block you from publishing these stories. And um, our lawyer had two words, he came back with me and he said, don't you know, Pentagon Papers. Well, the movie hadn't come out before that time, but it's the landmark First Amendment case um, that's, you know, the prior restraint, you can't do prior restraint against, against the media. So um, we published a story, and in response, he filed an antitrust action against us, an investigation against us, where he subpoenaed all of our personnel records and all of our financial records. So we, we, we went through that. Um, he did not um, get that, although we did wind up going bankrupt a, a year later. And then the other, the other the big, newspaper uh, did. The newspaper, yeah. Monica, opposition that you encounter? I think that my, my opposition is probably going to look a lot different than, um, than Eric's or Beth's. Um, the, there was a little bit on just the, the bureaucratic side. There were many times that I wished that this crime spree had happened in Maryland and not Virginia, just because the uh, Maryland freedom of information laws are much more press friendly. Um, Virginia, the police, the, the state police don't have to give you anything that they don't want to give you, and they didn't want to give me anything. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a level because it meant that instead of getting to go into to files and, um, and have a, a tidy, tidy stacks of boxes that I could go through, I, I really could only go through people, um, which, which was, was really the biggest hurdle that I, that I had to overcome. Uh, by the time that I came down to report these arsons, um, Folks in Accomack were pretty sick of reporters, for good reason, I think. They live in this ancient town that nobody had ever heard of until it was burning down, and now people want to come and write about what a hole it is. And that, I, I mean, that is hard. And I think that it was really hard for the people there to, to trust that I didn't want to do that, that I wanted to tell an, an honest story of what it was like to live in this county during, during this time of arsons. So um, I, sometimes I bring along a printout of an email that uh, the fire chief sent me the first time that I reached out to him. The fire chief of Tasley is this man named Jeff Bell with a handlebar mustache who always wants to be played by Tom Selleck in the movie version of <laughs> his life. Um, but I sent him an, an email very politely asking if we could sit down, and the response, which I almost can quote now, was don't ever call me again, leave me alone, I'll call my lawyer. And that was like, to get like three F words in one sentence, he's like, you're working really hard. Um, but by the, by the end of the reporting, I was sleeping in the Tasley Firehouse every night, and I was going out on calls with them. And on my last night there, Jeff Bell inducted me in as an honorary member of the department. So, but the point is, it's, it can be hard and it can be insular. And, and I was never not aware of, of how hard it was for people to be reliving this and how much trust they had to give me that I wasn't going to make them look backwards or, or make, their, make their county look like it was a, a bad place to live. Um, and, and the way that you build those relationships 
sometimes journalism students ask like what's the shortcut and like man if they ever find one I'd love to know it but for me that meant that I moved to Accomack and I rented a house there and I got a library card and I went to the I went to the football games and the church potlucks and I went to the town meetings about chicken poop runoff and like there were a lot of those meetings Um, but there's no there's no shortcut Um, At one point, I did sort of determine that the key to all of this was a man uh, named Todd Godwin. He's the the sheriff of Accomack County. My favorite thing about Todd is that when he's not in uniform, he's ordered all of these polo shirts, and he's had sheriff emblazoned (laughs) on them. (laughs) So everybody knows Todd. And, like, if you get in with Todd, you can get in with everyone. So there were a couple of weeks where I was just bringing Todd pies, like, all the time. Um, but you, there aren't shortcuts. You can't, you can't fake sincerity and you can't fake curiosity. And, um, and, and I just stressed at every turn, like, what are you doing today, Richie? Fixing your car? Great. I'm going to watch you fix your car and it's going to be... It's going to be the most interesting thing that I can do today because it'll help me understand how you live and what, it, what it's like to live here and, and be a fireman here. That was Beth Macy, author of Dope Sick, Monica Hesse, author of American Fire, Pulitzer Prize recipient Eric Eyre of the Charleston Gazette News, and moderator Dr. Reginald Sharif of Radford University. This panel was hosted by Virginia Humanities, the Virginia Center for the Book, and with good reason. It was also part of the Roanoke Valley Reads Initiative. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is a program of the Federation of State Humanities Councils. It seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Thanks to the Andrew Mellon Foundation for their generous support of the initiative. Thanks also to the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Additional music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.